Right, hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, hosting, as always, my name's Dan, and I'm joined this evening by Paul. Good evening. And Calm. Evening. Are you good, gents? Yeah, very well, thanks. Yeah, can't wait till the 21st of June, Dan. <laughs> I, I, I'll take the 23rd of May, because that's the end of the season. Uh, so I, I definitely can't wait for that um, but we'll, we'll come on to that more I suspect later on in the podcast where I wanted to start tonight is um, Tottenham and and Jose now not only do me and you pronounce his name differently Paul but um, I think with Mourinho he is becoming under increasing pressure not necessarily from Above him, but the the fans certainly are beginning to get a bit cheesed off, aren't they? And you you both live in in that neck of the woods. You both know more Tottenham fans than me, no doubt. But from uh, from what you've both been telling me, they're getting a bit cheesed off. Yeah, certainly the Spurs fans I know, Dan, have have been increasingly. I mean, it, it's interesting because some of them, there are a couple who have been relatively consistent, and even when they had that good run earlier on in the season. I think we talked about, you know, our Spurs title contenders at one point in November. Um, and there were a couple who even then were saying, we're not title contenders. We're not even any good. You know, we just, at the moment, Kane and Son score every chance they get, and that's not sustainable. That can't, you know, that won't carry on all season long. But the, the, a couple of the others who have now definitely turned, who at the start of the season, Jose could do no wrong, um, and I think uh, it's interesting to see how quickly they've gone from that that period at the end of November, early December, when they were they were on a good run. Uh, they lost uh, that game at Anfield with the the goal from the corner right at the end, the one that Tim Sherwood couldn't see coming, um, <laughs> and and it's really kind of fallen apart for them from from that point. Um, I thought I thought they were battered for an hour yesterday. I thought West Ham were all over them. West Ham are the, I mean, you know, West Ham are having a fantastic season. David Moyes is doing an unbelievable job, a job I wasn't sure he was capable of doing anymore. I I think they are benefiting. West Ham play like they're still fans. They get on with it. They show a bit of urgency. They press, they harry, they chase. They play like the Premier League used to be played when we have fans in the stands. And I think they're one of the few teams I say that about. Um, and I just think they completely overwhelmed Tottenham for an hour uh, yesterday. Tottenham, obviously, once they got the goal, um, they, they did kind of come back into the game. And and you'd say West Ham probably, you know, would you say they hung on maybe at the end? Uh, yeah, I think yeah, they probably could. Yeah, Gareth Bale at the bar, didn't he? And um, Son, yeah. well, I wouldn't say Son hit the post. The post hit Son, <laughs> given the way yeah, that ball was... deflected, but... There was quite a lot, wasn't there? A sort of West Ham throwing bodies in the way of things in that last 20 minutes. Um, um, but Spurs really only played for 25 minutes. Spurs played for 25 minutes out of 90. Um, and then Jose gave that ridiculous press conference where they said there are problems I can't solve, but we're not in crisis, whatever that means. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it, it looks to me as though there are problems at Tottenham. I think some of them are deep-rooted. Some of them are not Jose's making. Uh, I think some of the disenchantment in the squad, the factionism in the squad, um, predates Jose Mourinho and was some of what brought to the, the downfall of, of Pochettino, who was 
to my mind, the best manager Spurs have had in a long, long time. But Jose, does, um, he doesn't do anything for man management, does he? You know, it, no, exactly. I, I don't think he's tried to fix it, is my, my honest view on it. I don't think he's tried to fix the kind of fractured nature of the squad um, and the personalities within it and the relationships within it. Uh, he, he almost felt like what he did was try and put a couple of sticking plasters over it. Um, and at the moment, it's it's definitely not working and they are... They're in trouble. Um, you know, their run of form in recent weeks is really, really poor. Look at the team he picked yesterday. It's just really strange to me. You know, you've got the the fullback. Is it Regulion, uh, the the Spanish full fullback that they signed in the um, in the summer? You've got they played Tanganga uh, from the start. They played Lamella from the start. You know, I, I just look at that. Davison Sanchez, who I'm not a big fan of, and I look at the players on the bench and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think he's sort of scratching around Jose for answers to the question. And I think fundamentally um, they need to get some results quickly. The, the story was before the weekend that Levy desperately doesn't want to make a decision until the summer. Um, but the further they drop away from even Europa League contention, obviously they've got the, the League Cup final. If they win that, they're in the Europa League. Um, but the, the sort of swifter they drop out of contention for that, that European place, I think there may have to be a decision that comes before the end of the season. Again, we talked last week, didn't we, about you know what decision does Harry Kane make in the summer? Well, if it continues like this, even, even if Spurs scrape into seventh or eighth and make the Europa League, if the back half of the season feels like this, that isn't much incentive to Harry Kane to say, stay, we can kick on. Yeah. Um, I, I was just going to say, Cam, um, first of all, if I think what Paul was getting at, if, if uh, Pierre Emil Hoiberg is the answer, what is the question? <laughs> and, uh, and I know, Cam, that you, you were always keen to talk about Jose. Well, I, I think... Um... So I, I think the other thing for them to, to consider, uh, Paul, you know, you mentioned around um, Levy not wanting to make a decision is if you Spurs, what, what, sort of where do you go if you sack Jose Mourinho, particularly when, you know, your last manager was was Pochettino, who, as you say, I think is, you know, they were fortunate enough to have him for a long time and was a brilliant manager for them. Um, and, you know, Jose's kind of come in as a, as a big name manager as well to follow him. Like, where? You know where where would Spurs go after that? Um, I think that's part of the problem. Um, I I think as well there was a question of and and you've kind of alluded to this be, between both of you around him sort of coaching players or or not coaching players. Like given the state that Spurs were in and and the reasons for Poch- that sort of facilitated Pochettino's departure, was he really the right person to come in? You know, you look at how he behaved at, at Man United and even in his last spell at Chelsea. And I know he won trophies at, at both of those in both of those spells, but he did, you know, isolate and alienate players and call them out to the press and stuff. And, you know, given the situation in Spurs' squad then and by the looks of it still now, why, you know, why did they think that he was the right personality to to come in? You know, I, I think I remember saying to you, Paul, when he when he got the job that I think he, he did a number on Daniel Levy. And I think he probably just blinded him with trophies um, in, in his interview and on his CV. And they thought, hey, we've got a chance to get Jose Mourinho and his manager. Let's do it without perhaps considering what, you know, everything that comes with it. 
And yes, there's a chance he might win a trophy. And as we've just said, they might win a trophy, um, which I'm sure he'll be shouting from the rooftops about, as he always does. But it's it's everything else. It's it's how does it feel like to be at the club? And that's probably what people like Harry Kane are going to be thinking as well. Of, do I want to be in this environment? Does this feel positive? Does this feel like we're going in the right direction? And at the moment, you'd say probably the answer is no. And I don't know if they really considered that side of having Jose Mourinho as your manager um, when they appointed him. And, and, you know, now it feels like maybe some of those problems are coming home to roost. And I think that's probably, you know, a, a good deal why they're in, you know, the situation that they're in at the moment. And the trophy's gone, you know, the trophies Jose used to win when he talked about every season my children see me as a champion were the Champions League and the Premier League or, or Serie A or La Liga. The trophies Jose Mourinho wins now are the League Cup and the Thursday Night Cup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think he'd celebrate getting a parking ticket, to be honest with you. <laughs> Anything I want to do is a, is a success, you know. But, I mean, to actually pep's bad for that as well. He'll, he'll add anything to his CV. But, yeah, you, you, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, if you look at... And I know he did win, you know, he did win the League, um, you know, with Chelsea again. But, yeah, like you say, it was the, you know, the, the Thursday Cup... Um, you know, it's uh, at, at United's, and so it, it's it's not they're not the same uh, the same caliber. Um, but I just think you know Mourinho has always kind of, and I don't want to just reduce him down to that sort of checkbook manager thing, but he has always relied on investments, and you know coming into a sort of austere Tottenham setup with you know the huge stadium debts and the fact that Levy is always a cautious, relatively cautious operator. And the transfer market as well. Again, it's just, do those things really add up as a sort of ideal match of club and manager? And I don't really see how they do, to be honest with you. Um, And like you say, I think the fact that they have two of the best forward players in world football at the club has papered over the cracks for a while. And when they were, when they were, you know, absolute lightning at the start of the season or in the first half of the season, it it did, it, it, it did completely paper over those cracks. Um, and they looked they looked great, but all of a sudden, you know, the goals have dried up, um, and they they look a completely different side now to the one you know three months ago. Um, and yeah, I, I, I yeah, I can't, I don't see them making a decision before the end of the season because, like I say, I'm not sure. They clearly, if Levy doesn't want to, that means they don't have anyone lined up. And I, I still think it then opens that question of, you know, who's the right person to come in who can bring that 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 right personality. To um to either get players back on board or be decisive enough to say these are no you know these are definitely not part of my plans you know we need to um you know we need to get rid of them but you know Jose kind of has gone down that sort of public undermining route where you don't really know what he thinks <laughs> that, that I don't think that really helps anyone and it just adds to that sort of fog of confusion at the club um, which is exactly what what happened at uh, you know at Man United by the time he left there as well really? maybe Spurs need to go down the, the fashionable route and bring in. Uh, I mean, I suppose they've tried that with Sherwood, haven't they? Mark Hughes. <laughs> more, more recently, who's who would be a more you know a more Robbie Keane? <laughs> yeah, maybe um, Robbie Keane. I, I think yeah. The the point that, that you guys are making, which is right, is that you know when you appoint Jose, he either wins or does nothing because he isn't a guy who you know you you appoint Jose and in 3 years time he hasn't won a trophy and you go yeah but look he's brought four kids through from the academy into the first team or yeah but look at the way that he's restructured the the youth setup or yeah look at the way he's you know 
change the culture of the club, change the way we think. That isn't Jose. He's no interest in doing any of that. He never has had. If if Jose doesn't come in and win, then when Jose leaves, there's no legacy. It's I equate it a bit like, you know, if you go and order a Big Mac meal and you eat your Big Mac meal and the Big Mac meal's great, but then in, in an hour's time you can be hungry again. <laughs> It, and, and that's a bit like Jose. When Jose works, it feels great for a bit. But as soon as it's over, you're left wondering what you really got out of it. And I, you know, if if you ordered your Big Mac meal and it came with just fries and a drink and you didn't even get a burger, that would be Jose without trophies. <laughs> well, they, they put it this way, Paul, they won't be expecting you to order the company's premier sandwich. <laughs> no, exactly. I, You know, I just think... Um, that that's my feeling about him. You don't get those other things with Jose. They knew that when they hired him. It's kind of boom or bust. Let's be honest. They 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 sacked Pochettino to bring Mourinho in because it all happened within twenty four hours of each other. So um, the reason they got rid of Poch was because they thought we can go and get Jose here. One one question I've got, and we, me and you on our like preview, Paul, we kind of touched on this at the start of the season when I, I suggested that th- th- there's an increasing body of evidence that the Premier League has kind of evolved from Jose's kind of get Alexis Smirting on kind of mentality and th- th- there is more evidence as months go on that maybe the Premier League has passed him by. Is, is that something that you would both agree with? Um, It's a good question, Dan. I... Uh... I think it has, albeit I think the lockdown Premier League probably looks a bit more like a Premier League that Jose's happy with and that it tends to be a slightly slower pace. And um, more defensive. And a bit more defensive. Although I say that, I, I was actually speculating that, that the Arsenal-Man City game yesterday, which was you know horrendous other than the first 10 minutes where Man City were good, Arsenal were dreadful throughout, and Man City second-half played as though they, they hadn't bothered coming. Um <laughs> Uh, uh, but there was a period in the second half where it was almost like a veterans game because the Arsenal back four was standing sort of 10 yards outside their box. The Man City back four was standing 10 yards outside their box. There was a load of space in between them and the ball was being passed around by each side until they lost control of it and it went to the other team's back four who would then pass it across the back line 17 times, pass it forward and the whole cycle would repeat. And I thought about the gap between the two back fours now, when I think about the period Jose played in uh, with that, that first run at Chelsea, how compact they used to be and how you could pretty much... Chelsea's back four and their centre-forwards were never more than sort of 30, 35 yards apart at one point. Um, I just wonder if the way the Premier League is played more now, where the middle of the park is so open at times, um, it, that doesn't suit Jose. And maybe that is an area where... He hasn't caught up, and you can't you can't close that gap with with Huberg because he's not a good enough a good enough athlete to do it. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe the the league's just passed him by. I do think you know, when Liverpool were at full flow, and when Manchester City have been at full flow in recent years, they are teams that just would would blow past anything Jose has been able to produce. Yeah, I mean that that's been been talked about a bit. That you know, has his style just become outdated? It got mentioned, you know, a lot at, at United as well because it wasn't really clear what his sort of footballing philosophy really was anymore. In, in and particularly when there were those two 
examples up alongside us, our two biggest rivals, <laughs> pretty much, um, where they had a very clear difference, but a very clear philosophy from their two managers. Um, but I think my my sort of closing comment on, on on Jose, which I did want to mention, is, and I think you you again sort of alluded to it, really, is that I think that the the version of Mourinho we've got now is is different to the one that we saw when he joined the Premier League. I think the the Mourinho of Porto and Chelsea the first time and, and Inter Milan when he was winning those big trophies is is different to the one that we saw at, at Madrid and Chelsea again and United and, and Spurs now. And I think it's that Madrid experience where he sort of feel like maybe he, he, he fell out of love with the game a little bit and it sort of turned him a bit bitter and twisted. Um, and when he returned to the Premier League, that's the version of him that we saw and that's kind of what stuck and I think, you know, managing Madrid is obviously a, a huge job and stressful at the best of times. But being there, you know, when Pep Guardiola is managing that Barcelona team, um, I think just added to it. And I just think made him more sort of almost bitter and spiteful. And I think it's that's kind of shaped him. And then I, I know and I think, again, particularly given that, Bar- you know, Barcelona and, and, and Pep has continued to win plaudits for style of play and all of that. And, and, and you know, it's probably won and has won more big trophies than him recently. Um, I think that sort of sticks in the throat a little bit for him. And as a result, he's, he has a shorter fuse and sort of throws his toys out the pram and throws players under the bus quicker than he ever used to before. And I don't really know where he goes from this. You know, even if, if he does leave Spurs, you know, before or at the end of the season, it's almost like what's next for him, you know, because he's kind of going down the pecking order of clubs a bit now uh, when he used to be the, the sort of number one pick for the top teams in Europe. He's not anymore. Um, so where where does he go? Um, if, well, if he wants to remain in management. Watford will need a new manager as well <laughs> in the next three months. So that's an option if he wants to stay living in London, which allegedly is why the two jobs he was sniffing around, um, you know, a year and a bit ago when he got the Spurs job were Arsenal or Tottenham because he wants to mm. live in London. Um, and Roman Abramovich has finally got sick of him and won't give him that job anymore. So, uh, <laughs> you know, Watford might be available. I, I think it's a good point, Con, um, that you make. I, I think... Something definitely happened at Madrid that that, that changed Jose and changed his personality it, in the sense that I don't think you get that same sort of fire from Jose anymore. You get like a sulk now. You know, I think when when things went against him when he was at Chelsea the first time, he had that brilliant ability to inspire that sort of us against the world scenario where people got fired up. And now when things go against him, what I see is a sulker. Uh, and I, I think something has changed. I, I wonder a little bit. I genuinely think that the way Barcelona played football offends Jose Mourinho. And I think <laughs> I, I think, I think, offend, he I think it offends football. Barcelona fans as well at the moment. Well, at the moment, yeah, yeah. But the way the way that Barcelona played in that era with Pep offends Jose. That's not his vision of football. He doesn't think that's the way it should be played. And the fact that that got all the plaudits and he was almost sort of reduced to a bit part role. I think really got at him personally. And I don't know if he's ever quite rebounded from it. Jose Mourinho believes football should be a game played in the brain. Um, in a, in a kind of, you know, chess match style and, and that kind of expression that, that, that Barcelona team played with under Pep and that freedom that they, you know, we, 
you look at Man City when they've been flying the last few weeks and look how free the players look when they're on the field. That's not the way Jose believes in football being played. Um, but it, it definitely is the case that he, he didn't come back to the Premier League the same man he left it. Interesting, yeah. Um, the, I think what, what makes us soured Mourinho's time in football is uh, he, he had a a really hateful time at Real Madrid. I mean, it happens to all managers who go to Real Madrid eventually. So the lesson there is don't take the Real Madrid job, I suppose. I can also think of one certain R. Benitez who might also have that kind of mentality. Yeah, well, if you want someone who didn't take the Real Madrid job, you need Arsene Wenger because he got offered it three times and turned it down. Yeah, and if you want someone who, who else who likes a sulk, also call R. Benitez. <laughs> um, speaking of sulking, um, this is a, a democratic podcast, and um, the the right honourable members in the south of the country voted me outvoted me to to one that we need to talk about in the Merseyside derby. So all I'm going to say is that I'm disappointed, but it's no real surprise. Um, the, the one the one thing I want to focus on, Paul, is the penalty. Not because it changed the result, because I don't think we were scoring anywhere, but. I don't think it's a penalty. If it's a penalty, then by the the, the rule of, of David Louise, it's a red card. Yeah, I um I think we've now got four different interpretations of this rule we have, in about yeah, yeah. four weeks, Dan. Um because you know there was the Louise one where it was sent off and the red card stood. There was a Benarek one last uh, where the red card was later rescinded. There was the one last week, wasn't there? I can't remember which game that was in. We talked about it last weekend. And then um and then there was the one at Anfield on uh on Saturday. I thought it was a penalty. I thought it was completely accidental, but that doesn't matter in the rules. I thought uh that it denied Calvert Lewin a goal. I think he was he, he would have tapped it in the, the rebound. Um but you're right Dan if that's the same logic that he denied a goal but was completely accidental, then that's exactly the logic on which David Louise was sent off uh, um, at Wolves two and a half weeks ago. So if the referee thought that that was accidental, but a penalty, he couldn't possibly have thought um, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold was making a genuine attempt on on the ball in the second phase, because Alexander-Arnold was on the floor having made a genuine attempt at the ball in the first phase before the save. So he has to send him off if he thinks that's the case. Just, I mean, that that rule, that sort of double jeopardy rule, they've got themselves into a complete mess over it. Overcomplicated the rule. Overcomplicated the rule. And my very strong feeling is they should just go back to if you're the last man and you commit a foul that is deemed to have denied a goal-scoring opportunity, you are sent off. It's like the interpretation of the offside rule, wherein that, that ridiculous goal that Man City scored against Aston Villa, um, where some, I think it was Rodri was 45 yards offside, but, yeah. but because someone made an attempt to play the ball, he was deemed onside. No, stop overcomplicating the rules. If you have to get a protractor out, it is probably wise to stick with the on-field decision. I could go on and on, but yeah, the, the rules have been overcomplicated. Um, what, whilst I've got you, Paul, many years ago you told me a funny story about an accidental challenge, which I'd like for you to tell on this podcast now because it's it, it's something that I always 
wheel out myself. It's regarding it the, the, the accidental, you know, when the, the laces incident. Oh, yeah, that, that was very, very funny. That was a, um, uh, like, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, when I was, whatever it was, 15 game. Um, and the the referee ended up deciding that because he didn't really know whether he should give a penalty or not, he stopped the game and rang his mate who was the linesman <laughs> in the GM Vauxhall conference to take advice. <laughs> oh, God, that is an old story. I was about 14 then, <laughs> It just as, as soon as we started talking about because because Trent Trent did not have a clue. No, no, he gave. What happened in this game was the referee had given the penalty, um, and then the uh, the the defender sort of was appealing and said, "Yeah, but I haven't fouled him. I haven't fouled him. The striker's tripped over his own laces, and the striker had got his laces all undone. He'd stripped over his own laces." And the referee had no clue what to do, this sort of weedy little bloke on a Sunday morning, and said he was going to have to consult advice and stop <laughs> the game. Well, and it was in, like, we had mobile phones, but it was one of them brick Nokias he had to get out of his pocket. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Um, it was also the brilliant, I think I've told you this one, Dan, where I, um, I got sent off. Sorry, I didn't get sent off. Um, but I gave away a penalty in a cup game Again, under-14s, under-15s, ball over the top. I'm the last man. It wasn't dissimilar to the Lewis one. The guys sort of run across the front of me, and our legs have like come together, and he's gone down. I'm the last man. It happened about five yards before you get to the D. I'm the last man. And as soon as he blows his whistle, I'm thinking, okay, that's, that's a red card. Uh, an older Welsh referee, bloke with a big Welsh tash, comes running over to me, and he goes, right, that's a penalty. <laughs> what? And I said, it, it can't be a penalty. It's five yards outside the box. He said, no, but if I don't give a penalty, I'll have to send you off. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no you, can't, you can't choose. That's not how it works. I like yeah. this interpretation of the rules. It makes, <laughs> it makes more sense than some of the rules we've got at the moment. <laughs> the uh, the standard of refereeing in kind of kids, kids football is absolutely abysmal. Um, which which is no surprise because it's those people who aren't good enough to referee in the GM Vauxhall Conference and the Football League. And I think the point that Graham Sooners made on Saturday night about the standard of English refereeing and the fact that we didn't have a rep at the last World Cup um, and what that says about our standard altogether is is a really well made one. And then um, your mate John Moss didn't cover himself in glory on Sunday either. He was absolutely abysmal. Uh, every single foul he could get wrong, he got wrong. Yeah, I, I, um, that, that's, that's his ability to his ability to recognise in an aerial challenge which player's fouled and which player is the fouler. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a complete lottery to John Moss. I, I mean, that that's it. This is the problem, isn't it? As you've, you've just said, like fifteen years ago, like the likes of John Moss and Lee Mason. Maybe not Lee Mason. He's been around far too long for my liking. Um, David Coote, who would be out of his depth in an under fourteen games for Leeks <laughs> for Leeks SOB against Handley Town under fourteens, you know, like they're the kind of people who were refereeing then and and it's just sneak their way up the pyramid somehow. Yeah, it's um, it, it, the the standard isn't great, and and I think you know whether whether that was a penalty or not on on Saturday night, I I think. You either follow that through with a red card or you don't get the foul. Um, I don't really think there was an in between. And again, I don't know what the VAR then looks at. 
Well, well, Mr. Kavanagh didn't look for very long. No, well, exactly. And and he should have been looking for both. Was he just looking to see whether he thought it was a penalty? I mean, I don't know. Overall, on the game, uh, I thought Liverpool had a lot of the ball in the first 25 minutes of the second half. And other than the one chance for Salah where he got through sort of close in and um, Pickford, Pickford did have a good game, in fairness. We, we, we talked about the England goalkeeping situation last week and none of us were convinced on Jordan Pickford. And I thought he played really well on Saturday. Made a good save with his legs, didn't he, coming out um, at close distance to Salah. Great other save from moment, Henderson, long range in the first he, half. He made a great save in the first half from Henderson, he did. Absolutely brilliant save. Um, but I, I, I think other than that Salah chance in the second half, even when Liverpool were dominating possession, dominating territory, I didn't think they were going to score. And they look to me a little bit, Dan, and I don't know what your reflection is, as though they don't think they're going to score themselves. They don't look as though they believe a goal's coming at any point. And I think back 12 months and, you know, games where Liverpool would be laying siege to a team at Anfield and you almost felt they could score every time they came forward. Uh, there's definitely, as, as well as the things we've talked about with form and Firmino falling off a cliff, I, I think there's definitely a bit of a confidence issue at the moment. And, um, you know, it doesn't help when you go 1-0 down after three minutes. I, I feel sorry for the young centre-half. He's out yeah. of his depth. Yeah, he is. Um, he, you know, I don't know what position he was trying to take up for the through ball to for um, to Richarlison. I don't know what body shape he was trying to get himself in. He, he looks like a centre-half who's played in a, a team that's rock-bottom of Bundesliga and has conceded about 75 goals in the last 12 months. Yeah, he he just he was all over the place. He, he it's not his fault. It like it sounds as a, it's not his fault, and it's not really Liverpool's fault that they're having to you know resort to that because of all the injuries. Um, you know Henderson then going off, when, and that obviously doesn't help. Uh, I, I thought Everton sort of just sat back second half, thinking we'll catch him on the counter attack eventually, and of course he did, um, and got the penalty and got the second goal. I mean, great for Everton. They haven't won at Anfield since, was it 1999? So it's been yeah. a long time for their fans. Um, I'm sure they'll be, be delighted. Uh, I still don't think Everton are going to finish in the in the top four, or probably even the top six, to be honest. Um, the story of the game really is more about where it leaves Liverpool. And, and I, I just think, you know, the injuries have, have played a part, but the confidence at the moment just looks like it's on the floor. I, I'm I'm at the point now um, where I've just written this season off. Um, it's just we're on our seventeenth centre half partnership. That is absolutely dumbfounding. I, I, I'm struggling to, to to describe that. It's just absolutely ridiculous that we've had so many injuries in that position. Um, I think Kabak's a bit of a strange one because until the wheels went off at Leicester, he played really well. Um, he was perfectly fine against Leipzig as well. Um, he didn't. That was his worst game, but it's only a small sample size. But yeah, he doesn't look like he's particularly. Um, go. I don't think we'll be signing him permanently from what I've seen so far. But there's just time, yeah. Uh, and yeah, we're we're de- devoid of confidence, and it's um, it's quite soul crushing to be honest. Um, I've gone from looking forward to every game to dreading every game, um, and it's been said a few times Everton won't have a better chance to win at Anfield, and 
this really was the chance and I, I did get the feeling that they were going to take it this time. It, it would have been a, a surprise to me had we won. I could have you can see, always see a draw in, the, in a Merseyside derby, but um, I'm just at the point now where I don't think we'll finish in the top four. If we do, great. If we don't, make sure we finish outside the 39 Cup spots because that ruins team seasons. It, 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 it just does. Um, maybe not so much this season because the the whole thing's so compressed anyway. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, when we're back to normal and it looks like we're going to have a bit of normality in next season, maybe before we go, uh, we then have a winter break for the uh, the World Cup the season after. Um, well, the 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 other thing is Dan on that, and and this this may turn out. I can't remember what order we're doing things. Is this may turn out to be a brilliant segue into the next topic, or it may not. Can we move but, on um, to Merseyside give... Derby? <laughs> Well, I was going to say just around, you know, I'm completely with you. It's like if you can't get in the top four, just avoid avoid the Thursday cuff. But I, what, what I was going to say is one sort of given that there's also um, the Euros happening, uh, you know, assuming that they do happen and it looks like they are this summer. Um, you've also got that to contend with next season as well, that you've got like a packed. This season's been packed. Then there's the summer, lots of Liverpool players, assuming half of them are fit again, <laughs> will presumably then be turning out for the country and then coming back. So actually, if you were to have a season where you didn't, you know, whilst I know obviously being out of Europe would be weird considering the success you've had in Europe in the last few years, um, equally, you know, one positive you might take from it is if you've got a full, a full squad back and ready for August, September, whenever next season is due to start... Um, without the distraction of, of Europe, you could, you know, potentially have a have a real go at, uh, you know, potentially trying to wrestle the league back off uh, back off Man City. Devil's advocate, Khan, and I'd be interested in both of your thoughts on this. I think that one of the biggest problems we've had this season was the lack of preparation in the preseason. So, as much as I'm kind of watching through closed fingers when our players are playing international football, is the Euros a chance? For those guys to maybe have more of a preseason this time, well, in the sense that they, in the sense that they get the get the game time in, you mean, Dan? Yeah, yeah, possibly. I I think um, I think Carl's point is is more about the 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 rest, and I think it is a question with Liverpool players, and you know we've heard it said about oh, Klopp's teams being really intense and the way they press and and. Can you sustain that if you don't get a good break? Um, I don't know. I think international football uh, is different. I think the way the games are played is a bit different. Um, I think the thing it tends to do more than have a knock-on effect during the season is disrupt that first few weeks when you've got players coming back at different times. So, you know, the countries who got knocked out in the group stage, you pretty much have those players from the start of your pre-season programme. The countries where they get to the latter stages, you, you maybe don't get those players back till a week before the season. I think it tends to, if it disrupts anywhere, it tends to be that first sort of month or so. Um, so it, it's it's a question as to as to how that that acts. I certainly think, yeah, I certainly think watching Arsenal, I, there's part of me that thinks, okay, if we win the Thursday Cup and make the top four. Uh, and, and well, not make the top four, make the Champions League. If we win the Thursday Cup and make the Champions League through that route, which I don't see, frankly, but if we do, great, we'll take it. Um, I know again, it's a reduced budget if we don't make the uh, Thursday Cup, but I, I just am at the point where 
I think Arsenal will benefit so much from playing one game a week and having a proper week to prepare each game. Um, and because, you know, Arteta does want to do tactical stuff. He does want the team to, to learn certain things and adapt themselves in certain games. And he talked after yesterday about, um, you know, the fact that they practiced something all week about the way that you shut Manchester City's width down and then didn't do it in the first 10 <laughs> minutes. And that's where the goal came from, um, you know, and, and I suppose you can. You can work on something as much as you want. If the players are crap, you've still got a problem. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, but, you know, you know if, if Hector Bellerin and Rob Holding decide to play to meet you with Raheem Sterling five yards out from goal, uh, you know, you can practice closing down as much as you like. Uh, but I, I think there is a point there on Liverpool as well. I think the intensity they've played at for the last X number of seasons. Actually, if you give Jurgen Klopp next year and say, you've got one game a week, Jurgen. I think he'd, he'd probably sign for that, albeit he'd much prefer to be in the Champions League if it's still possible. That's that's where I'm at now. Our our kind of allure to other teams isn't going to drop because of one season where it's the weirdest season in history. So I, I, I would be... I, I, I'm at that point now where you know it, it, it doesn't really get much lower than losing at home to Everton. <laughs> Um, is, is how I feel but we play Sheffield United next week I am open to amending their opinion um, before I start talking myself into depression because um, only really rubbish teams lose to Sheffield United <laughs> well you said it Cam not me um, as, was, as, that, was, that, was that the week when they said the league's over because the gap's got bigger since hasn't it and now he says the league's still on so I think someone just wants to run all the way through the way maths works. Um, if I, I can, you uh, rightly identified. You fancy swapping places next week. Um, you, you identified that um, we've got a nice segue that we, we mentioned kind of the Euros. Um, there's been a lot of speculation this week and the, the, the broadsheets are jumping up and down, screaming, saying England are ready to host the Euros. I think we're... we're we're all pretty much agreed that the intergalactic Euro 2020 and 2021 isn't going to happen. Um, do you think there's a, a possibility that England might get it? Well, I mean, I haven't read beyond a couple of headlines, in all honesty. I've not seen the details. I'm assuming, it's like everything, something's been leaked and the papers have ran with it. Laura um, Koonsberg has jumped on it. <laughs> um, and... It's it's a strange one in a number of ways. I mean, I think it, quite a few of the games were going to be over here, and certainly England's games. So there's an element of, you know, is it just a sort of natural extension of that? You know, uh, you know, we've obviously got the stadia and the infrastructure, etc. Um, how important, you know, and it depends what type of a tournament we're talking about at this stage. Is it a tournament with with any fans, you know, what's the travel situation? Is it is it just the, the teams, you know, the squads and the coaching staff coming over? Uh, or, or is it, the, you know, is it more like a normal tournament? It, it, we, we have to understand what the sort of terms are. Um, but then the other angle is, you know, we, we haven't exactly done brilliantly with, with this year COVID thing that, that's been rattling around for the last year or so. And it does seem a bit jarring given some of the numbers that have gone around of how people in this country have been affected, 
to then invite half of Europe over to have a party, um, you know, just as we're literally hoping, as, as the announcement is today, that we might, by the skin of our teeth, be back to some sense of normality. It perhaps feels a, a touch premature, maybe. Um, so some concerns around that. Um, so, yeah, I just thought it might be an interesting point to, to discuss a bit further. I don't know if you guys have read any more about it or, or have anything to uh, to add. Yeah, I look. I felt all along if if the intergalactic fly everyone around the continent option was <laughs> off the table, um, the, uh, which it should be. Uh, the the only two viable options are England and, and probably France. Uh, Again, partly be, yeah, partly because the, you know we've got great stadiums, and the French had to do their stadiums when they had the Euros uh, a few years back. So. In terms of having the, the right, maybe Germany. I think Germany's probably still got enough that meet the grade from 2006 as well, give or take. You couldn't go to Spain. They don't have enough stadiums that are up to scratch. Um, you know, unless you're going to play all the games in three or four venues. And frankly, even some of the best venues in in Spain are not without their problems. I mean, you know, it's not that many years since you and I went to the. Uh, the Bernabeu Khan and, and, and that needs some work. That's looking a bit tatty and tired these days. Well, um, they're, 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 they're both doing the, it the, up. Yeah, yeah, both the new Camp and the Bernabeu. So actually it might not be good timing because if they've got scaffolding around them and yeah. it's half, you know, yeah. half uh, in the exactly. so, doing that. Then. So I think Spain's off the list. I think you probably are down to quite a small list of countries who could have it. Um, you know, the UK's got a fantastic record of putting on sporting events. Um and doing it in an extremely efficient and effective way, uh, in doing it in a safe way, and managing the transport, and managing the crowds, and managing the policing. That said, um, the COVID experience has been an interesting one for the UK, let's put it that way. Um, and if we're saying that we're not going to let people out of lockdown until the 21st of Ju- uh, June, it then feels a bit rich to be offering to allow you know, all the all the continents footballers to fly in and move about the country with reckless abandon for um for a number of weeks. Now I know it wouldn't be with reckless abandon and there would be there would be tight restrictions, but yeah, it it, it I, I still think it will have to be a one country tournament. Um I don't think there's anywhere around that. England's an option. We've got the stadium, we could do it. Um it depends a little bit on what the what the data says. Um in April, May, in terms of our number of infections. And we do have a vaccine rollout that helps our case. You know, we're ahead of the rest of Europe in terms of vaccine rollout. So maybe that factors in. Um, you know, again, I, I don't want to turn this into the COVID podcast because I think everyone's sick of the, <laughs> the back teeth of it. But when we're talking about will the Euros be played in England, I think it is a relevant consideration. Mm, and Yeah, I mean, you'd assume that at least the people associated with the, you know, the 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 country, the travelling squads, and 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 the sort of uh, entourage would all, you know, presumably have to have have to have had a vaccine, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as well. So uh, that we're not sort of, um, you know, if, we, if if the rollout continues here and we've got to a decent proportion of the country vaccinated by that point, uh, which hopefully we will have, that we're not sort of diluting that by you know, let, let, letting people sort of travel in who, who might not have. So I assume that would be a sort of mandatory thing. Obviously, that's com- more complicated if it then involves 
um, fans, but I, I like I said, I've no idea what sort of uh, what sort of tournament they'd be talking about. Whether it is just a you know behind you know it's in this country, but it's all behind closed doors, like the league has been and, and, and all the other games have been, uh, or, or whether you know there's we've seen some models today of you know X percentage or you know this number or X percentage etc. Um, but that then that then changes things if you're talking about allowing travelling fans as well because um, that, that makes things, I think, a lot more complex and risky to go that way. Yeah. And unless, it, they just let, unless, of course, they just let domestic fans and English, English fans can just go to any of the games that they want. Um, we can go and cheer on, you know, Belgium versus, who, you know, Portugal or whatever. Um, so that, that's the other option that, uh, you know, that we, we, we get to go to, to any of the games, but no one else can. Um, I'm not sure if that, would, uh, if that would go down too well. You know, what? one of the most enjoyable I won't, I won't say random because it obviously wasn't random, but in Euro 96, I, I watched um, the Czech Republic knock off that Italy team 2-1 at Anfield and it was great. And I've ne- I, don't, I, I don't think I've been to an international game since. So I would I would like to, to get the opportunity to go and watch a few games. I, I would go and watch Russia against Serbia. I don't know if either are in the competition. I can't remember off the top of my head. But I would go and watch that. The qualification finished about four years ago, Dan, to be fair. It's hard to remember who's in the competition. Um, I think England are. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I make you right. Euro 96 was a great sort of festival of football, uh, and I hate that cliche. Um, oh, but it was. In the, in the UK, and I think, uh, I think it'd be, you know, I think us having a tournament is way overdue anyway. Now, I'd, I'd much prefer to have it in a situation where we could have full English stadia because I think it'd be fantastic. You know, you imagine that a World Cup being played in, in um, even in the whole, if we did it for the whole of the United Kingdom, you imagine a World Cup being played in full full houses at the Millennium Stadium and at Wembley and at uh, Old Trafford and at Anfield and, you know, St. James's Park, the great stadiums we've got up and down this country. Um, it'd be a real event. Uh it's not going to be that if we end up hosting the Euros in the summer, but it is still it is still give English football fans hopefully an opportunity to be in the in the crowd and watching some some high quality games. Yeah, I think the thing as well is um, it gives if that happened, we would be able to say um, to to the relevant parties, look, we can do this. You know, like we 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 can. Um, put on a really good tournament and with the likes of Jack Warner no longer around give, give us a World Cup basically <laughs> yeah give us a World Cup give us a Euros um, yeah I'm still not convinced that one that's going to in, in the desert which is only next year isn't it is going to happen we might get we might get them back to back you never know <laughs> <laughs> could, could you imagine that talk about buses <laughs> yeah <laughs> and hopefully by then we will definitely be allowed to have uh have fans in the stadium. Well, uh, you say that, calm, but Chris Whitty says we've got to be very cautious. <laughs> so uh, maybe we should bid for the World Cup in 2040. And yeah. uh, Chris Whitty might be happy with a few fans in the stands. Um, we, 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 can again, side, we can sidestep we, Chuck Blazer. <laughs> We're going down the road of turning this into the COVID podcast. Um, <laughs> but no, look, uh, I, all, all I'll say is I am sticking with my prediction that it won't be cross-continent. Yeah, I think that's a a pretty sensible opinion. I, I don't see how it can be, but we're, we're, we're dealing with UEFA here, so maybe, maybe we're being a bit too. Uh, I mean, what, Liverpool, where, who, the Liverpool game in in Hungary last week was that the away leg? 
Uh, yes, that was the Leipzig home game. So, so Arsenal have the benefit of an away goal as well from our our away leg against Benfica in Rome. <laughs> and Benfica will now get the chance to score a, a vital away goal against Arsenal in Greece. From, I mean, the whole thing's nutty, isn't it, frankly? From, <laughs> from what I understand, Liverpool are going to be in the same position as well, I think. Um, I don't know. I, 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 there's, there's talk of it being in, in uh, Hungary again, actually. Right, so you know, we're already seeing from the club competitions how difficult moving footballers around Europe is. And I know you'd say, yeah, well, we're in February now and you've got another four months until you have to worry about it happening in June. But come on, let's use some common sense, folks. Yeah, but we've already encountered the difficulty of, I've just mentioned UEFA, common sense, logic, brains, thought processes, (laughs) procedures. Let's not get... uh, Ahead of ourselves, just want to um, wanted to kind of bring starting to get towards the end now. But um, what do we think about substitutions? Sorry, substitutes being substituted because um, I, I'm not a big fan of what Thomas. I'm not a big fan of Thomas Tuchel anyway. I'm not a big fan of what he did to to Callum Hudson Odoi. I thought that was ropey management. Yeah, there's been a couple in recent weeks, hasn't there? There was the there was a West Ham guy at, at United in the cup as well. The young young West Ham player, his his name escapes me temporarily. Um, who who Moyes did it to? But I think when he took him off, I think that was in extra time, if I remember rightly, wasn't it? Didn't the game so, go yeah. to extra time? It did, yeah. So so uh, while I think that's dodgy, I think there's a bit more of a sort of case for that. Um. But you know, I don't. I don't like what he did to Hudson Odoi the other day. I, I don't think that's very good management. Um, bringing a guy on at half time and then taking him off with 15 minutes to go. Like, you know, I, yeah, I don't like it, Dan. I, I don't. It wasn't a game that was in such a state that. It was so obvious that it had to be Hudson. Like, if they'd had a man sent off, and then you've got to look and go, oh, God, who can we sacrifice here? The most sensible person is Hudson Adoy. I don't like it, but I can almost live with it. But when, the, you know, there was, there was nothing abnormal about the game, why he felt that uh, he had to take him off again, it, it is embarrassing for players. And I, I, I wasn't watching the game um Live, but based on what I've read and based on the, you know, the sort of things I've seen from pundits, it wasn't like Hudson Odoi was having an absolute shocker. Uh, and I know Tuchel's come out with this. I didn't like his attitude. Well, okay. So that in the there's other ways room. to there's other ways to address that. Exactly. You know, there's other ways to address that. I would say, you know, you, you give him a dressing down at the end of the game in front of his teammates in in the privacy of the dressing room. Um, you're you're working, you know, hard all week on the training pitch, and then you leave him out of the game in Europe in midweek. Um, and that t- teaches him a lesson that you can't go on and not show the attitude you, you're expecting. I just think it was unnecessarily public hum- humiliation, and I don't know how, I don't know how the rest of the Chelsea squad would react to that. But if we remember, you know, if there was one club we know in England where the players hold sway, it's Chelsea. Hmm. Culturally, basically, since Roman's been there, the players decide when a manager comes and goes. And 
it's a big risk because if he loses that dressing room, he will be out of a job. And I know he, I'm not. I'm not suggesting Chelsea <laughs> should sack Thomas Tuchel. He's been there about three weeks. I am not suggesting that. But we we know long term at Chelsea, if you lose a dressing room, Goodbye. the chairman, the owner, they never back you. They back the players. So I just think it was a big risk, and I I, I thought it was unnecessary. Yeah, it it does feel like he was going out of his way to make a point and, and possibly a point that didn't didn't really even need to be made that strongly because I think part of the reason... I think you're always going to get asked to perhaps explain yourself when you do that, but I think part of the reason he did is I think most people onlookers were... Sounds like most people were a bit sort of baffled as to, to why he'd done it as much as anything because it doesn't sound like... I, I wasn't watching the game either, but it doesn't sound like he was having a complete, you know, such a shocker that it was obvious. So, uh, and you know, for a sort of fairly youngish player... You know, still sort of developing and learning. It doesn't feel like the right way in sort of modern football, if you like, um, that that's how players will really react well to. Um, but you know, makes things makes things a bit more interesting to see how their next uh, how their next couple of games go and whether Hudson Odoi features and how he features and so on as well. So um, there's that angle to it at least. But yeah, I did you know do do feel a bit sorry for him. And uh, as you say, you know, rightly say, Paul the player power at Chelsea is uh, phenomenal and that's what dictates things. So, I mean, he's on a short-term contract there anyways, isn't he? I think Tuchel, I think they finally learned the lesson at Chelsea where he's, he's on a sort of relatively short deal, I think, um, which suggests that they're, they're doing a bit of a almost try before you buy with him anyway. Um, yeah, I think I think they gave him 18 months, didn't they? So, yeah, I think it's to like the end of next season, yeah. if you know what I mean. Um which yeah doesn't suggest that you know that they're sort of in it have that much faith in him for the long term anyway. But equally, it's probably because that's probably about the average shelf life of a Chelsea manager over the last ten years. Um, so maybe someone in the accounting department's like, is maybe just don't pay them an extra ten million to get rid of them and just put them on a shorter contract to start with. Yeah, I I just think as a matter of principle, I don't like the substitute being substituted unless. There's, you know, what I would call a material change of circumstance in the game. I only, you, you have a defender sent off and you've got to bring somebody off. I, I can kind of in those circumstances see it. But other than that, I just think it's unnecessary. And, I, you know, yeah, sometimes players need to kick up the backside. I think we'd all agree with that. But I, I think there's better ways to do it. Paul, as someone who, who played football to a, a, a a relatively decent standard compared to the average person. Would you say that is probably the the worst insult that your manager can give you? I think it is in terms of it, it embarrasses you in a very public way. You know, it, it embarrasses you in a really public way, especially at a Premier League level in front of the cameras. I, I yeah, I think players accept when they've played badly that they go and sit in the dressing room. And even though it's in front of their teammates, they accept that you're going to get two barrels. You know when you've not had a good game, every footballer does, or when you've been a bit below par. And you sit down in the dressing room and you think, oh, he's going to get to me in a minute. And then the manager does and he'll let you have it. And that's you all accept that. No one sees that as a kind of humiliation because that is the, the accepted route of receiving negative feedback on your performance. I think because it's done so rarely and so unusually and so exceptionally, I think players do see it as the ultimate humiliation. Yeah. You know, especially that again, it, it's, 
it's different again, albeit I still don't like it, if Hudson Adui's come on after 15 minutes because someone's gone off injured and then he takes him off with 15 minutes to go. I still don't love it, but it's different. But he brought him on at half-time to impact the game, gave him half an hour and then said, no, sorry, mate, you're not doing it for me and off you come. And I think players do see that as a humiliation. Even even then, you know, like you... you... Like I remember Adam Lallana was just coming back from an injury. He had to come on because we had an injury and he came off with like 15 minutes to go because he was only fit for about an hour. Yeah. Like in that situation, that's completely fine. But that's not what Thomas Tuchel was doing. Now, this was about sending a message. And as I say, I just think there are, there are classier ways to do it. Yeah. And of course, they spotted to a 1-1 draw with Southampton who haven't... Who, who haven't won this decade? I don't think that's certainly how it feels anyway. Apart from when they played Liverpool, obviously, but that that's, that goes without saying these days. Um, well, Southampton, Southampton haven't won since we started saying how well they were doing. So we've, we've also, <laughs> I was, was going to say, we'll move on to any other business now. But we've also cursed Brentford on this podcast. Yeah, because they've suddenly hit a wall. Uh, have you? Have either of you got anything that you've been catching your eye on? I, I can honestly say that. I'm that fed up with football at the moment. Um, I've not really, not much has caught my eye. Um, I, I won't mention one team that's on a winning run because I will end up getting a kettle thrown at my head or something. If um, one, who were you going to mention who was on the winning run? Um, a team in white that play in Horwich. Oh, okay, Bolton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm not saying anything otherwise. Lest I get a, a PlayStation Five controller wedged firmly in my temple. So, so I was going to mention um, uh, two things really. Um, one is, uh, and they're linked to one another. So, one is the Renaissance of Cardiff City since Mick McCarthy arrived. Well, it's Mick McCarthy doing Mick McCarthy things. And- Exactly, and they're right on the verge of the playoffs now, and they run a sort of seven or eight undefeated, I think. Playing really well, closed the gap right up. They smashed PNE on on uh, Saturday four 0 They're on an absolute storming run up the table, uh, and you know, at the same time as that's happening, I'm looking at the table in League One as Ipswich struggle to beat Oxford and sit currently twelfth in League One. And I think about all those Ipswich fans three years ago, heckling Mick McCarthy, get out of our club, cancer on our club, and all that nonsense, utter nonsense that he took. A ridiculous abuse from a fan base who, who were turning their ire on the wrong person. There was no money at Ipswich. They were selling players left, right, and centre. Yes, they were getting worse each year, but Mick was keeping them in the, in the championship. Um, and I think what we've seen... In what's happened in the last week or last couple of weeks since since Mick got the job at, at Cardiff is the problem at Ipswich was never Mick McCarthy, it was Ipswich. That's why Mick McCarthy's seventh in the championship and Ipswich are twelfth in League One. We've probably got some Stoke fans who, who listen nodding their head vociferously at um, any criticism of Paul Lambert. Well, exactly. I mean, let. Uh, Let's not go down the old boys club of who gets managerial jobs. Paul Lambert still being in work is a mystery to me. Um, <laughs> but, but as is, look who's back at Bristol City. Mr. Ostrich Head himself. N- Nigel Pearson's the new <laughs> Bristol City manager. He'll be squaring up to someone on the touchline very soon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, I just like... Eh, 
When people look at the jobs Nigel Pearson does everywhere, why do people keep him put... It just baffles me. Baffles me. It's a strange strange one because he he did okay at Watford and if they weren't such a comedy football club, he he might have had a shot at at, at at getting them straight back. I mean, Watford might go straight back up anywhere, but... You know, yeah. they've just appointed some someone from abroad who we've never heard of, and there's no problem with that. But it just—I I feel that I felt a bit sorry for for Nigel Pearson. Um, I, I mean, I felt sorry for the way they sacked him last year, which was—you uh, know—there was absolutely no point in making the decision when they made the decision. But ultimately, they were in an awful run at that point. Yeah. I mean, they were pretty dreadful just before the lockdown, and it didn't get any better once we were out of the lockdown. Not, not that God bless him, Hayden Mullins was going to make a difference against Man City and Arsenal. Well, quite, well, quite. <laughs> uh, it I wasn't Hayden Mullins' fault for sure. <laughs> no, but the uh, the Watford chairman would probably have sacked him anyway. Carl, have you got anything that you want to add? No, I don't think so. Not from my side. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing additional this week. Well, we've, um, we've reached the end of a, another episode. We've been doing this since uh, since August now, Paul. It's and, and Khan, it, it's 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 flying by. I hope the next three months flies by a little bit quicker, <laughs> unless we start winning games again. Um, well, you know, the, ne- the good thing about football, Dan, is next week is always a new week, and there's yet more fun in the Thursday Cup this week. There's the Champions League, isn't there as well? I think. Um, this this midweek, so there's there's plenty um plenty of football for us to talk about next week. Can we not get the Leipzig back force in in the Premier League? They were very generous to us last week. <laughs> well, so were the Benfica back four, but we still managed to not score more than one goal. Um, strange. Yeah, and football is very good at being strange. Um, now with the the cricket starts soon, that might put a smile on my face until in England are ninety four all out. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nice to see you, gents. Sorry I've been so pessimistic. I'm, I'm sure you understand. We've all been there at some point. Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I will catch up with you again next week. Uh, working on working on a guest at the moment. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to get one on soon. And I'm, I'm ho- hopefully I'm going to try and get a Barcelona fan on, an actual Barcelona fan, not someone like me who just likes them because they, they beat up Man United a few years ago. Yeah, there's there's issues with Barcelona, so that'd be an interesting one to do. Mm-hmm. And an 89th minute uh, equaliser for for Cadiz is not good news. But yeah, there we go. Thank you very much for your time, gents, and um, for everyone for listening. Um, please remember that you can catch the Big Football Podcast on iTunes, Podbean, um, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And we would love you to hit the subscribe button, and we'll catch you all again after a while. <laughs>